Welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week it's time for our first episode, the first episode of Ask Me Anything. This week I'm the guest on the show. I'm being interviewed by Beth, Freddie, Cara, Harry, Sally and Lenny. They're all asking me anything. Although they actually asked me a particular and specific thing. Make sure you sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips for the podcast and get in touch with me on social media. Now it's time for Ask Me Anything, a very different tempo. And thankfully, I get to speak a lot more, which I think is what this podcast has lacked. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Hello and welcome to Russell Brand Ask Me Anything from Luminary. This is an episode of the podcast where we use questions left for me. How do you leave a question? Go to russellbrand.com. Go to russellbrand.com. Slash ask me anything where you can ask me anything, anything at all. Go there and leave your question like these people did. Here's the first one I was sent from Beth. Hold on, but I'm going to do a catchphrase. Beth, ask me anything. Here's a catchphrase. Hey guys, my question is, do you believe that all human beings are fundamentally good and that bad behaviour merely stems from disconnection with authentic self? What Beth has asked there is a question that I could answer yes to and like leave it at that you know when you're at school you're supposed to ask questions how what where why when so that people can't say yes in response to it also this is something i covered on the episode with brene brown brene brown said that from her past in social work she had to really deal with that challenge of are people like she sometimes thinks people are fundamentally bad and it's a hard idea to wrestle with the idea of fundamental goodness in people even people that are negligent of their children even people that are failing in their most obvious and fundamental duties and are when it comes to it uh suffering as beth said in a question from this fundamental disconnection let's have a listen to the rest of the question because that is so far the answer is yes finally if you do believe in our authentic goodness how do you rationalize that to the many people who are understandably skeptical given the amount of evil that we see in the world and throughout history beth ask me anything beth's asked are people fundamentally good and uh are people um or how do we explain the presence of evil have you got anything to add jen um, <laughs> um that's it You've got a fan this week, and your addition is um. Who's yep. your fan? <laughs> I can't remember her name. Oh my god, this is she's no. She's a woman. Way. Oh, she's well done. <laughs> American. For having a rough idea of what a genitalia <laughs> and general way oh. that she identifies might be. That's not enough, Jen. With me and the people that are kind enough to support me, who I would never call fans because I'm too respectful, I understand them essentially, integrally, and love them. Um, so with old Beth there. How do you explain the presence of evil? Well, I suppose we have to go beyond duality, is what I would say. Like, It's difficult to have an objective understanding of evil, isn't it? There's no doubt that all of us suffer decay, entropy, loss. Yes, we do. There's no doubt that things that feel bad and seem cruel, abuse of vulnerable people, the, the deterioration of the planet, all of these things feel and seem bad. The way that I've 
have to handle it, not believing in a sort of a dualistic good versus evil paradigm, is that from our limited perspective, things may seem evil, but we cannot seem see the full picture that everyone, as you indicated in your question, Beth, is doing the best that they can. And I refer to one of the books in my um, YouTube mini-series, the books that made me, uh, Edward F. Eddinger's book, encounter with the self based on the drawings of William Blake my favorite panel in that is Blake's engraving of the behemoth and the leviathan that Yahweh talks about when addressing Job on the very nature of this subject the presence of evil in which Yahweh says to Job behold the behemoth that I have made as I made thee the behemoth as depicted by Blake is a terrifying creature and for me a representation of our kind's carnality our dumb appetites that don't care like you know a cheetah dragging down a wildebeest don't go oh no that poor wildebeest what about his kids it operates from a place of impulse and rather instinct and um on some level we're the same as that aren't we now so what i feel is and what it says in that eddinger book is that god as the sublime and supreme creator, even if you see God as like, you know, the Big Bang or some single point of creation from of which all evolution has, uh, I want to say, expounded from, I suppose. Like he says that without our faith, without our commitment to beauty through dutiful love, there is no prerequisite for the universe or for God to be essentially good. The universe is by its nature all things uniquely we have the potential to be good and loving as you indicated also in your question beth that that journey is undertaken through connection through re and of course in this book that i'm talking about the edinger book called an encounter with the self by becoming whole by becoming realized by incorporating your own shadow by by understanding the darkness of our own instincts and appetites the selfishness of lust the selfishness of some forms of carnality so what i would say is the presence of i would argue that there is no such thing as evil there is preference i would prefer not to be shot by a gunman but and but if i were to be if we looked at all the various permutations in every single direction it would make a kind of sense and given that there's an inevitability to matters expiration what uses there really in quibbling over the circumstances and conditions and time of an individual's death death is coming all things on this plane expire this plane is determined by transience we are time beings time expressed in matter what i feel like is the, the sort of the identification of evil is kind of, is a sort of a rudimentary mistake a, a mistake that comes from our simplistic understanding of the world that is based on our own experience of pleasure, our own experience of kindness and happiness. Now, how I count, like how I prevent myself from falling into nihilism. Once you've said it's like in you know, a meaning is kind of projected onto reality rather than inherently being there, is by saying that when we are loving, when we are in tune with a kind of uh, like this sort of presence of compassion in our own lives, when we are behaving in accordance with it. That it, it it is rewarding, so it doesn't need to be meritocratic. It doesn't need to be. This is a behaviour that is externally and objectively good or kind. It just feels good. 
perhaps the you know perhaps psychopathic serial killers say well it feels good when I psychopathically serial kill and luckily there are sort of sociological political and criminal judicial measures that stand in the way to some degree of that kind of behaviour I would say that the challenge with evil is it's difficult to objectively identify it and I also think that it's not a place where we should long dwell I think if we focus on awakening focus on our own individual defects of character our own individual appetites that can easily go awry is the philosophy that i'm mostly into 12-step philosophy believes that all of our individual wrongdoings and i suppose one could say therefore by extrapolation cultural wrongdoings come from instincts gone awry from greed selfishness from like there's nothing wrong with having a procreative urge but if your procreative urge makes you selfish towards other people then that is problematic. Nothing wrong with wanting status in a group, but if your desire for status in a group makes you oppressive to other people, that is a problem. Nothing wrong with wanting to provide, to have, to have some access to material and the means for survival, but if that drives you to be greedy and tyrannical, it's a problem. So I suppose what we're talking about is kind of alignment, recognising that we live in an animalistic, mechanical, we live in a machine that requires sustenance and and that, that sort of leads us to have to fulfil certain survival drives. But who is the witness of these drives? Who is the witness of our thoughts? What is that aspect of us what, that is transcendent of the constant need for more? So yeah, there is evil, but perhaps not from a ulterior or ultimately objective perspective and do i think that most that everyone is good yeah i think if everyone to were to achieve their optimal state i don't think we would have a planet full of really really efficient hitlers i think it would be a sort of a christ-like and beautiful place i hope that answers your question beth certainly i had to go on a little bit of a mental journey for it Jen, we remember that when you were turned to, you said Erm. Oh, well, I've got her name now. Oh, what is it? Amelia Conway. Amelia Conway, thank you for supporting. Do you want to know what she said? No. <laughs> well done, Amelia. I can't fault your intention, although there are clear problems with your taste. <laughs> now, let's go to the next question. Uh, no, yeah, go on, tell me what she said. To me, you're the highlight of Under the Skin. Hold on. <laughs> well, let's have a look. There's another message here from, also from Amelia Conway. <laughs> Dear Russell, I sent a message to Jen because I sense she's a person in a state of deep psychiatric deterioration. That's obvious to anyone. Lord alone knows how you put up with her. You must be some sort of saint, I've often wondered. Anyway, if you hear anything from Jen along the lines of her being the highlight of Under the Skin, just know that it was my way of trying to provide some light in the life of an obviously very dark person who, to look at, looks like a member of the Ramones if they were depicted in a Disney cartoon. Lots of love, Amelia. That's a... God, thanks, Amelia. Oh, God, don't read this out loud in front of... Oh, I, I shouldn't have read that out. Okay, let's go to the next part of Ask Me Anything. It's from Cara. Is that right? Is that an Irish name? Yeah. Yeah. Cara, Cara. if you're English. Don't be racist. Right, let's have a listen. Hi, Russell. Cara here. It is Cara. My question relates to scepticism and spirituality. I was originally raised Catholic and since childhood I've gone through various stages of atheism and agnosticism. 
And while I'm open to ideas of panpsychism and kind of connected consciousness, where I struggle is the idea of God in a semi-traditional sense. And that's mainly because it throws up all the typical issues of pain and suffering that exist in the world. Could you explain what exactly God is to you and whether you see God as a literal being or something more abstract that exists in all of us? Thanks, Kara. I'm really grateful to people sending such intelligent, well thought out and beautiful questions. That's so lovely. Thanks for telling us about your own um, history of faith and your own experiences with religion. I've not had that kind of background. I came from a sort of cultural agnosticism where there was sort of no real definition or preaching of any direct tradition, although I will say that my mum was very loving and my father was very determined. So that I've had a kind of a, what I'd say is a secular Essex faith of, you know, try and be kind, but look after number one. And I'm very pre- aware of the presence of both of those qualities, if indeed that's what they are, in my own psyche. I recognise your concerns, or inquisitiveness rather, around the sort of nature of God. I mean, who the hell doesn't have that? But when you said God as an actual being, I suppose a being is kind of how I envisage, uh, understand God. And indeed, I would contest, feel God. How I describe God is the underlying oneness from which all phenomena emanates. This too helps to answer the previous question about the nature of evil. All reality I see as a kind of symphony emerging from the instrument of God, the light rays emerging from the entity of the sun. So all traceable back to one source. How this informs morals and ethics, in a sense one could argue that they are social constructs that enable easier relationships as opposed to some sort of objective truths, although love does feel objective, as we all know, when we feel love, other than, of course, love starts to make us do crazy, demented things, but then I would argue that's not love anymore. So I don't personify God. I think God is beyond personification. I've done these to talk about the experience of God as opposed to the intellectualization of God for a moment, although, of course, it will pass through a filter of intellectualization while I talk about God. I do these breath exercises that take me right out of myself. These breath exercises, there's a moment where I'm like in meditation, I'm aware of a sort of a harmony with my body, a peace and an absence of thought and a kind of a state of beingness that's free from either sort of speculation or rumination. But when I'm like, do these breath exercises, it's powerfully transcendent in an almost dislocated way. What I mean to say is, when I do these breath exercises, I very near pass out, right? And in the sort of brief moment where I am in both spaces simultaneously, the ordinary waking state and whatever this state induced through this breath work is, I feel like my persona and identity are a temporal avatar inhabited by some concurrent reality that I am the inhabitant of two, at least two, concurrent realities. There is something in this wordless, silent space absent from my individual identity. Something is there, but I can't bring anything back from there. 
almost in the same way as it's difficult to bring, bring, bring things back from dreams. I know sometimes we remember our dreams, but I find myself, if I don't like make notes immediately on waking, I forget most of them. But they are all encompassing and vivid while we are present in them. What are these various strata of reality that we're capable of inhabiting? If within an individual's lives we feel and experience different expressions of reality and we return to a sort of a common, a common source, a common self, then I kind of, I suppose, feel that it's possible, particularly when we look at culture and the recurring themes and motifs that are found in culturally dislocated uh, places, that we are coming from one collective unconscious space that we can find again and again a sort of psychic fingerprint of who we are really, who we are when not guided by local cultural conditions. And, and some, some people, of course, will argue that this is biological or chemical or physical, the way that we individuate, the way that we imagine childhood the way that we imagine death, the way that we tell stories, the role of music, our understanding, our, our sort of belief in some celestial force, out the idea of a golden age. Like all of these sort of various, the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the rebirth, resurrection, all of these ideas that are sort of found again and again, for me, suggest that there is a kind of psychic truth that we are continually referring to. And the presence of this psychic truth suggests a place of singularity, a place in common to us all, a place from which we all emanate. Now that can obviously be, uh, what do I want to say, anthropologically or even biologically underwritten in that we have evolved from, you know, single cellular beings and more recently apes and that we do have common ancestors, we do have common genes. But when I was talking to that man, Bruce Lipton, the other week, and he said that thing about the membrane of a cell being sort of, if not sentient, certainly intelligent, making choices in his stem cell research, suggesting that cells that are, uh, that are neutral at the point of origin take on different characteristics depending on the environment they are placed in. It made me think about, wow, there is unity. We are intelligent protoplasm responding to environment. We are in relationship with environment. We are in relationship with time. We are permutations of one source. So how I envisage God is non-division, non-subjectivity, non-location, absolute oneness. That's how I envisage God. I mean, I don't know all the time. When I'm praying, I'm praying for the highest self within me to be called forward, for the most powerful and potent psychic energies within me to come forth, for my temporal ego to be suspended so that I can be free. I consider God to be not separate from me and not separate from anybody and not separate from anything. And I can understand that in the practice of storytelling, whether it's a sort of a very beautiful and complex story like Catholicism or a simpler story like your own personal mythology, it comes with it comes loaded. It comes cut loaded with culture. It comes loaded with other other uh, objectives, with an agenda, usually a materialistic agenda. And, and I think that that makes us all sensitive to the idea that there has been some hypocrisy, perhaps. So me. Um, yeah, I see God as oneness, non-separateness. That is applicable on the individual level when I'm just meditating and free from thought. 
and on a broader level the acceptance that what is deep within you and what is deep within me is the same kind of crucible i hope that helps ask me anything we don't do adverts in luminary because it's a subscription model so there are no adverts but if there were an advert now it would be an advert for you for you just carrying on being you except for in the areas that are causing you some challenges maybe it's like you think that you're thinking too much are you thinking too much and not feeling enough are you living constantly in thoughts yes that happens to me as well right let's return to the body now I can see the next question from Freddie half boy is sort of in the titles it must be referring to that Michael Mead half boy myth that we heard on an episode of Under the Skin see our culture is continually focused on facilitating the uh, intellectual life no the mental life like keeping you in your head essentially not moving you to feeling let's move towards the old feelings that's my advert. It was a bit diffuse and it didn't have a logo. But let's have a listen. Freddie, we asked Freddie, ask me anything, Freddie said. Let's see. Freddie? Hi, Russell. Oh. Freddie here. Um, oh, I just, oh, I'm thinking right now about the story of the half boy that was told by um, Michael Mead on your podcast. Um, and I feel like in my personal life right now, I, I relate to that feeling of, of halfness and, and trying to find the the other part of myself that might help me uh, sort of find my purpose. And I wondered if you had any advice um, or if you could think of a time in your life when you felt like you had found your purpose or that you'd really landed. Um, and if you had any, had any advice or insight um, for someone who, who is struggling to find uh, where their energy and their power needs to go right now. Cheers. Freddy. All right, mate. What a lovely question. Thank you for being so sort of honest. I love to think of you wherever you are in your life, talking into your phone or whatever and leaving that message. It makes me really happy that you've reached out in that manner. Thanks very much, mate. That half-boy myth is really very beautiful, isn't it? It's a sort of a good story about initiation, entering into adulthood. And look, I feel like I've found my purpose all the time. I don't feel devoid of purpose. I feel connected to purpose. Sometimes I have challenges when I feel like I'm incapable of fulfilling it. My purpose is pretty clear. All you need is senses to understand my purpose, what is around me. I've got a dog, right, must have to look after that dog then. I've got children, got to look after them. I'm married, that sort of ceremony to indicate like I've got duty and connection there. And look at what I do for a living. So all of my the various purposes in my life are pretty clear. What I feel you're asking is is like that you sometimes feel, well, I heard you, you said you don't know what your purpose is and you don't feel connected to your purpose. Now, how I feel like you discover it is all there, you know. That's one of the things I'm confident in. The same as I'm confident with Beth question that ultimately human beings are good the same that i'm confident with kara's question that there is indeed a god in fact there's nothing but god i'm confident with your question freddie that you will discover purpose when you allow it to become present in your life like you know like when you're writing a story do you know what you have to do like if you can't work out the ending right if you're writing a story it means there's something you didn't put in the beginning right you have to go back to the beginning of the story and go what didn't i put there so that i could make this ending make sense and this is talking about constructing a narrative in a very deliberate creative way like so when you're um in your situation 
it's the answer is already there for what your purpose is. What we have to be careful of is that we have not made our culture the agency of our purpose. For example, me, I thought my purpose was, you know, become famous and all that stuff. It's obvious that the culture was an agent of that purpose. Oh, become famous, be a performer. Luckily, there was enough genuine sort of like animus in it. There was enough genuine energy and appetite and real sort of, I don't know, libido, life force in that purpose for it to sustain the obvious trials and challenges of it being exposed as a kind of a, a sort of a cultural imposition because you know some of it was indigenous some of it was culturally applied i did a video it says here in the notes um remember i did that video about um you know when i was a kid and doing my first school play and feeling what it was to have purpose and have meaning and have connection i think we called it how to find your purpose is that what we called it have a look at that again mate and perhaps that's in a sense what solicited this question i've also been told to advise you to listen to our first jordan peterson podcast where this kind of thing was discussed he's all about that and he like that kind of mythos and stuff so what what i feel like mate is that you need to spend some time you need to go on like a what do they call them things like dream quests you need to sort of spend some time with yourself you need to create some ceremonial space in your life to discover your purpose like and don't impose it from the outside don't like think i should go an x factor or you know i should become a lumberjack or anything just if you see like, both of those things are possible solutions but it should be coming from within because purpose implies an inner connection if what your external action is running on is this inner this like some kind of inner energy some inner resource then you won't run out you won't run out it will become what uh is referred to in Ayurveda as Dharma, the work that you do that gives you more energy by doing it, a kind of self-sustaining system or beyond sustaining, a flourishing, self-nourishing system, a kind of internal ecosystem. So what I recommend is like using your own past, devise, here's an exercise, oh this is a good sort of thing, using your own past, design for yourself a ceremony, like think of who your gods are, are they family members, friends, people in public life that function as saints and avatars in your psyche? Like for me, how like Muhammad Ali, David Foster Wallace, Bill Hicks and John Lennon do as men further down the path or when I'm feeling particularly uh, powerful and up for it, Gandhi. You know, if I think, right, like what, how am I going to, how am I going to, how does anyone change? How do you become something you're not? How do you expand and extend beyond the limitations of your current life? You call upon the gods, you call upon the mentors, you call upon your own psyche. The saints, the mentors, the gods, merely are uh, age catalytic agents for psychic energies present within you, likely cut off from your conscious life by the trauma of your conditioning. To re-engage these energies, you must evoke once more the original gods, the gods of your own origin. So think about your life. See, for me, I suppose, if I was to try to live my life once more, but better, when I was lost and bewildered from adolescence to the end of my chemical dependency, what I could have done is created some ceremony for myself around shamanism and performance. I could have like gone to some theater space or some graveyard and I could have took pictures of my icons and I could have burned them and I could have prayed and I could have said, tell me who I am, tell me who I'm supposed to be. If you're like awake to yourself, like the answers will come, the answers will come.
because what happened to me was is I did a school play and on when I stepped on the stage and I heard people laughing, it switched something on and it never went off again. It's never gone off. It's still on now. So like, you know, that was luck. But like, uh, surely sooner or later I'd have discovered it. Maybe not, says Bear. But, you know, I would say you must try to evoke your awareness of who you really are through ceremony. You might need to do a bit of research on that. All right, mate, I hope, Freddie, that that's at least some guidance, and I'm very grateful to you for your question. Oh, no, there's been another email from Amelia. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, there hasn't really. Was it a praising one? <laughs> going in quite hard this time. <laughs> Harry's asked me anything question. Yeah. Yeah, I should, shouldn't I? It seems like you just click on here and you get asked anything by Harry. Oh, wow, he's gone deep with how language creates reality. We're, we're finally, we're, we're getting well beyond my comfort zone. Hi, Russell and the Under the Skin team. Harry here, Irish man from Dublin, living in Berlin, Germany. Russell, you are a skillful communicator with one of the widest ranging English vocabularies that people are likely to come across from anyone in the public eye. I would love to know your thoughts around the English language and its effectiveness or lack of effectiveness in communicating matters of spirit or our true nature. In English, we say, for example, I am angry, identifying as the anger. How does this help progress individualism? And are we perhaps missing a trick here where other, more ancient languages express the idea that we are the observer of our thoughts, emotions, and indeed all sensory input? In the Irish language, we say, anger is on or upon me. If you get to answer this question, I will have happiness upon me. Oh, you beautiful pagan. Jen, do you speak Irish? Did you understand that? Yeah. No, you never. I did all my education through Irish. Go on then, say it again. Tafaragurum. Beyahasurum. What was the second bit? I will be happy. Tafaragum cigarifum. Tafarag means angry. Tafarurum means upon. Well, look, there's a lot of people who think that language does create reality. Of course there are. Like, uh, well, Lacan, Chomsky, loads of stuff, on which is, I must confessed to not being an expert upon but it stands to reason that the architecture of our consciousness is formed to some degree or at least understood to some degree but with the by the instruments of language that's how we sort of paint in the colors of reality and i, I loved your example there mate about um what's it gaelic um yeah or guelga is the irish one gaelic i think encompasses scottish versions as well guelga guelga Guayelga. It reminded me of something I've said many times that in Hindi they say uh, Hindi comes to me, and in English we say I speak English. It places the individual in a sort of a sort of place of agency, a kind of forthright, robust, and aggressive position. There I am speaking English right up its ass. Whereas, like in Hindi, Hindi comes to me every time when I'm talking to my kids a lot. When, like, I say I have to correct myself quite often. I have to stop myself saying. This. Are you angry, Peggy? I have to sort of go, do you feel angry, Peggy? That's at least that modal uh, or that sort of modal approach prevents it being enmeshed in her psyche. And I think you are right. Our perspective is largely informed by 
language and perhaps we could argue that the domination of the English language is in part because it brings to bear a certain perspective on reality that is in keeping with many of the other dominant ideologies, for example, you know, capitalism, imperialism, all of these ideas play well or at least expressed well and perhaps align in ways that I'm incapable of describing with the implicit mentality of the English language and its inherent individualism as you expressed it. And Look, matters of spirit are surely uh, somewhat obtuse uh, or perhaps opaque regardless of what language you're speaking because by their very nature they are beyond language like you can't actually describe a particular piece of music in the same way that that music describes itself you can't describe a painting in the same way that painting describes itself language of course will always be I heard K Tempest say a gateway to the thing rather than the thing itself I feel that we must surely be inhibited by the limitations of language and I suppose that's why language and the part of the mind that deploys it must be understood to be only a portion of our total reality more and more I am trying to inhabit the intuitive non-verbal parts of my being and when I was just saying in the last question about those experiences that I have with you know those breath exercises where my individual consciousness shuts down a little bit in the in the question with Freddie there that place is wordless that's how i describe it it's beyond language it's beyond even image it's beyond iconography but when i'm in that space i think god i I entirely exist there and i think how would a materialist a rationalist someone who doesn't believe in any um what do i want to say sort of supernatural or you know like i'm mindful of the uh, the quote uh all technology seems like you know magic if it's sufficiently advanced and how how would they understand that? Would they? Oh yeah, well, just well, the brain is starved of oxygen, and the and while it, when it when the brain comes back online, it would be sort of really sort of I think you'd really be groping for a way to describe and it, like this state by materialist means. Let alone some of the psychedelic realms described by you know Terence McKenna or those sort of this great videos of uh, indigenous shaman taking sort of DMT and describing the experience and how it compares with some of their own sort of medicine experiences. So, look, yes, language is limited. Not only is language limited, the aspect of consciousness that we operate within while we use language is limited and it does impair our ability to receive spirit none of us really know why we love football none of us really know why we love chocolate what is the experience of chocolate doing have you never tried to stop yourself from eating chocolate or looking at pornography by trying to use the rational mind to break it down as i did when i was a child why do i need to eat this chocolate it's just putting this thing in my mouth i mean what is it doing and of course i was in no position to understand what was happening to me biochemically 
lend. In fact, I'm not even in a position to understand it now, but certainly it is beyond language. It is, of course, perhaps not aspect of it is not beyond science because you know you can it can be explained to you serotonin serotonin is released by this and dopamine is released by that but no one can explain why the experience of these things are pleasurable why 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 language is limited this aspect of our reality is limited it is all about limitation time is about limitation space is about limitation these two animalistic planes through which we experience reality are, I believe, products of this limited aspect of reality rather than objective planes which we glimpse through our narrow perspective. So, mate, I reckon the success of the English language, and I love the English language very, very much, and I don't obviously speak any other languages, so I'm obviously not in a position to really compare, but I love it. I love its flexibility. I love the onomatopoeia. I love it, the humour embedded in it. I love it. I love the English language very, very much. But there's no question that there are limitations and that, are, that only the things that there are words for are being said, which is, of course, that's a, I'm, I didn't coin that. Um, I hope that's helpful, mate. Certainly, we have to have access to a part of our psyche that is super linguistic. Ask me anything. The next question is from... Lenny. Hi Russell, I'm Lenny. I was wondering which breathing technique you use most frequently and do you kind of do an integration sometimes of the breathing technique of Biet Simkin together with the one from Wim Hof or you just do one type every morning? The only thing I do every morning, right, is pray and meditate. Those things I do do every morning. I meditate for around 20 minutes. I pray for about another 10, 15 minutes. And I do more and more breath work. And I do do Biet's uh, breath work. I really, really love it. And I think I'm going to do some more stuff with her. And Wim is also, like I... um. I do that I do that when I do stuff with the cold I do Wim Hof's breathing so I do that maybe three times a week and Biet stuff maybe a couple of times a week I'm not good at like I was thinking yesterday when I was doing yoga that I should have a regimented monastic routine that I should get up every day at five and do all these various kinds of breath work you know and yoga every day like but I tell you, I'm just at a time of my life where I've got young children and it's like it's in sort of um, Ayurvedic terms. I'm a householder. I've got like sort of domestic duties and it it's you cannot achieve the kind of like, look, you can't. It, of course, true monasticism is selflessness, but there's a kind of selfishness in selflessness in that you cannot be bound by relationship. You can't have the obligation to sort of walk a dog and look, you know, you, of course, a, a life of devotional service brewing out in some bloody uh, uh, sort of abbey like that, you know, that's sort of one type of life or working on a an allotment, growing things or making soap or whatever the kind of stuff, you know, Christian monks do. That's one way of life, and I bet it's bloody difficult as well. But I live a like a relatively conventional, albeit comfortable version of secular Western domesticity, 
and like so the spirituality is housed within that this is what living in a cult is is what we know like sort of in a sense what we're talking about is saying i want to live in a form of i want to live in a version of society that is outside of that you know if you make that choice if you go you know that it's not an easy choice to make you like because really a definition of a cult like of course we all know there are bad cults, cults that have exploited their members either sexually or financially or both, or like are unhealthy in ways that I'm, I can't even sort of envisage. By which I mean not necessarily in terms of degree, but like they might be sort of weird, abstract ways that I don't understand. But what I think is possible in communal living is to set up a different system of rules and laws and live by them. I would suggest that democracy would be a big part of that and sort of spirituality and living simply and slowly of making a choice. I don't want to live in this culture no more. I don't want to be bound by it. Like much as I, you would see, you would imagine if you were watching me from the outside that, you know, I'm devoted to my telephone because I'm always looking at the damn thing you know like most of us i yearn to be free i yearn to have access to the things that i'm trying to gain through the interface of technology so like i do do i be, do bs a couple of times a week i do whim maybe three times a week some you know sometimes in cold water sometimes not um i'd like to do it more i'd like to do it every day but it's hard you know it's hard when you've got children this, there's a question here that's like one minute and 20 seconds long coming up. Hey Russell, I'm interested in your understanding of the relationship between um, two threads of the spiritual journey you've um, described so beautifully. Um, on the one hand you've got the sort of um, transcendence of the self and the thoughts and emotions and the, the daily um, ups and downs that come with, with kind of egoic day-to-day -day living. Um, which sort of seems to imply a kind of um, let go of our attachment to those things and um, trying to transcend them in some way through meditation or um, being present or whatever it may be. And on the other hand, um, you've described the um, inventory process that takes place as part of your 12-step program, um, which is, seems to be focused on on really looking at those situations and thoughts and, and understanding them and delving into them. And I was wondering whether you saw um, the latter of those two being an important permanent part of, of your spiritual journey or whether you see that as being a temporary step that you may one day no longer need if, if you can um, reach a certain point in transcendence of ego. Uh, thanks, mate. Um, you're awesome. God, what a lovely question, Sally. You're supposed to do the inventory part of the 12 steps on a daily basis. Step 10 is meant to be a daily inventory that we note down any time you're fearful or angry or sad or agitated in any way at all. Anything other than unblemished serenity. And isn't it an incredibly optimistic? Um, well, it's not optimistic because it's accepting you're going to have that. But isn't that a wonderful aim in life to be forever present forever awakened and free from irritation and agitation that's what what we're setting our compass by that's our north star that's what we're aiming for we're not aiming for can i sustain this misery and discontentment and just struggle through it and sooner or later death will come along and i'll be relieved of it no we're meant to be happy joyous and free now if we're not because we're alive and we have to deal with human beings we have to deal with our own body we have to deal with the uh, social and cultural conditions of our time and all of this the, the sort of almost limitless amount of obstacles to free-flowing free flowing life both 
inner and outer obstacles, we have the step 10 inventory. So you become the observer of your own emotions. I was scared then. And like, and you write down, you know, I was scared. And you ask, why was it? Oh, I was scared because X, Y, Z. What part of me did it affect? What and how am I participating in it? Using the stuff that's, you know, available on my website, available on First164 Blogspot, and of course available in my book Recovery at some length. And there are plans for me to do some further writing on that subject. Now, what I, in answer to your question, the 12-step philosophy, which of course I didn't design, merely interpreted, is very clear that this is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing daily process because I suppose what they're saying is that it's uh, like that life is a journey, not destination. And a person is an event, not an object. And increasingly, that's what it seems like and feels like to me. When I think of someone like Eckhart Tolle, that dude is in the, like he's not in the... Um, you know, he seems to have been liberated from the problem. You know, he's living free, is what I would say with Eckhart Tolle. He's free. And I must say that it's very sort of beautiful to be around that. I don't think Eckhart Tolle has to sort of write down uh, when the delivery driver dropped off this parcel. He was like a bit short with me and it pissed me off and it reminded me of my childhood and all that kind of thing. But I think a lot of us have experienced so much sort of cultural trauma been un and, and social and personal trauma and been unable to express it that we're going to probably for some time at least, and perhaps you're right, Sally, perhaps there is a point where you transcend beyond it. But I think for me, it seems like it has to be an ongoing thing that I have to continually remain aware and vigilant about what it is that's bothering me and what measures are required to set it right. And I'm kind of okay with that because it's certainly better than the alternatives of stifling it down, repressing or suppressing it. You know, so, yeah, I think as it's written in 12-step philosophy, it's certainly a daily process. And for me, it ought be because like a lot of people in recovery, I don't do that stuff every day because... You know, or quite often I'm lazy and just want things to be simple and easy, but it ought be every day. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, all of you that sent in your questions for this inaugural debut episode of Ask Me Anything. Beth, with her fantastic question. No, Sally, we've had enough from you. Beth, with her wonderful question about the nature of evil. Cara, who uh, talked about my belief in God. Freddie, who asked about purpose. Harry, what was Harry talking about? Language. Oh yeah, does language form reality? Um, Lenny, breathing exercises. And Sally, just then, just a matter of seconds ago with the uh, inventory process. All incredibly well thought out, wonderful questions that make me feel really, really inspired by the community of people that are using this podcast. And it's my sincere hope that we have more opportunities to do things collectively and communicatively as we go forward together. In the meanwhile, though, I really, really love you. I really value your contributions and I will be available to do more of these episodes of Ask Me Anything. So let me know what you thought of it on Instagram, tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets on uh, you know Twitter, obviously. But most importantly, go to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything to ask me anything. And while you're on there, sign up to the mailing list and um, you know get invitations to live stuff or online stuff. And keep checking out my YouTube channel daily, Ask Me Anything. Go to the website now, record your question. You'll be on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin, only from Luminary.